Welcome back to the Combat and Classics Podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. Shiloh Brooks at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Jeff Black at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. We are on book 14 of Homer's Iliad. Uh, Shiloh is going to give us a summary and Jeff's going to ask an opening question. Okay, so this is quite a book. Nestor, it begins with Nestor visiting the wounded Achaean commanders from a, a couple books ago when everybody who's anybody got hurt. And so Nestor is walking around and visits a number of people, Agamemnon among them, and lo and behold, lo and behold, Agamemnon wants to go home. Surprise, surprise. Um, Odysseus, however, uh, chews him up one side and down the other and uh, criticizes that notion. And so we get a continuation of the last book in a way because after this scene goes down, um, Poseidon back on the scene, ready to encourage the Achaeans. And Hera wants to make way for, for Poseidon to do more. And so she has this elaborate erotic scheme and she's gonna distract Zeus so that she can aid the failing Achaeans and make it such that they can um, you know, mount a, a defense of themselves and go back on the, the upside, the upswing against the Trojans. So she dresses herself up. She gets all gussied up, big time. Dresses and earrings and does her hair up nice and gets everything going real good. And then she goes to Aphrodite. And I don't really know what this is about, but she gets, my translation said a zone, which I thought was weird. What's a zone? Is it a, what is that? It's a belt. <laughs> okay, so she gets a belt. I couldn't tell, because in the other translations would say like, breast strap or something, you know, and I was like, oh, this is interesting. I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> but at any rate, she gets this thing uh, that's apparently got naked people on it. I don't know, it's really an extraordinary thing that she's got that's like a piece of lingerie of some kind or some sexual tool. At any rate, she gets this from Aphrodite, she gets that on, and then she goes and visits Sleep and says, hey Sleep, I'll give you one of my daughters if you'll come on with me to Mount Ida uh, and, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm gonna make love to Zeus and then he's gonna go to sleep and then once he's asleep, we're gonna get Poseidon to, to, to uh, help out the Achaeans. So Hera travels to Mount Ida, Zeus sees her, immediately wants to make love to her. And then what has to be one of the most, one of the strangest pickup lines I mean, it's his wife, so weird. In all of history, I would certainly never do this with my wife, though. He recounts all of his past conquests. He, like, goes through all the ladies that he's <laughs> ever been with and all the times that he's ever got it on with anybody in front of her. And then it's like, but you, I want you more than all of those, all of those times. Um, so it's a weird way to talk to your wife. Like, all the times I've been unfaithful to you, all the times, like, all that, but now I want you more. So at any rate, uh, they do the deed he falls asleep and Hera tells Poseidon, get at it. This is the main part of the book. And then sort of toward the end, there's a moment worth noting where Hector takes what is the, really the first serious wound that he takes that any, well, a few major heroes have been, have been hurt, but Hector, Achilles, Odysseus, they're all, you know, relatively solid, although Odysseus did get hurt. But anyway, Hector gets a, a stone thrown by Ajax at him and has to be carried off the battlefield. So the Trojans are now in retreat and the Achaeans are back on the upswing. Yeah, thanks for that summary, Shiloh. And I, I feel really bad, you know, uh, if we have the opportunity to talk about an elaborate erotic adventure, if I ask about something else. <laughs> so uh, this, this might be a wasted opportunity, you know. Maybe, maybe we need to have a Combat and Classics After Dark episode, you know. <laughs> but uh, but all I... Night. Yeah, yeah, all <laughs> night, that's right. Um, uh, so, yeah, it might be worth talking about why 
Hera needs to pursue this plan, right? So book 14 differs from 13 in that 13 Poseidon interferes with the will of Zeus in disguise and Zeus is distracted. And now it looks like the interference is going to continue, but Poseidon can be open. He can be himself because Zeus is going to be asleep. And I'm not sure what that difference signifies other than Poseidon's interference produces more effect in book 14 than it does in book 13, right? This, this wounding of Hector, which looks like it's a pretty dire thing. And by the way, happens very quickly as soon as, you know, the Greeks get their, get their energy back. Ajax just is a much superior fighter to Hector, and he, he knocks him out pretty quickly. The thing I wanted to ask about was a kind of continuation of what we talked about in the last pod, which was this question about whether excellence on the battlefield means excellence in thinking or deliberation, whether the two things come together. And the reason I wanted to ask this is because of this strange episode that happens with the leaders of the Achaeans. So Shiloh mentioned that um, Nestor, who we haven't seen since book 11, and we've been kind of at a cliffhanger because of book 11, right? Because Nestor has come up with this idea that Patroclus is going to put on the armor of Achilles and join the fight, right? So we want to know when is this going to happen, right? Well, we finally get back to Nestor. Nestor goes, like Shiloh said, to find the leaders of the Greeks. And we get this really weird deliberation where Agamemnon says, Let's pull the ships into the harbor and anchor them offshore. And then Odysseus says, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. And Agamemnon says, you're right. That's a stupid idea. What's a better idea? And then Diomedes basically says, well, I'm young, but I'm not a weakling or a coward. So listen to my idea. And here, here's what he says. There's a very long introduction, which I'm not going to read, where he gives his lineage. This starts at around 109. He concludes in this fashion around 127 or so. No, let me read from around 125. So you will not say that by lineage I am a coward and a weakling, and so despise the words I speak. Right? There's that connection again between being brave and strong and the words you speak being worthwhile. Come, let us go down to battle, wounded though we are, since we must. Then we will hold us ourselves apart from the fight, beyond the range of missiles, lest perhaps one of us take wound on wound, but the others we will spur on and send into battle, even those who up till now have given in to their resentment and stand apart and fight not." Right, And there also, by the way, is the resentment that we talked a little bit about last time. It seems like the disgruntlement has spread throughout the, the Achaean forces. So it's not Odysseus that comes up with this plan, right? The, the master planner. It's this young kid, Diomedes. So is this part of the positive argument that there is, in fact, a connection between uh, bravery, strength on the battlefield, and having good ideas? I mean, how good an idea is this? It, it doesn't seem like a... It's like, hey, let's. This seems like running a football play. That's like, hey, we're gonna try to score a touchdown. Okay, I understand that's the. That's what we should do. How are we gonna? How are we gonna do it? Like, <laughs> it, it doesn't seem the most brilliant. Yeah. Like it's a great idea in that. Yes, you should go and fight the Trojans. How? How do we do that exactly? Is kind of the question that. You know, but it's it. This this is kind of this is the yeah. beauty of you know yeah. we talked about this last pod about and why it compares to sports or like war and sports and or business or it's like if you score then it worked and so it doesn't have to be uh, you know the best plan it doesn't have to be the best speech as long as it works 
and this works. Mm-hmm. So good on Diomedes for, for laying this out. Maybe it's just what they needed to hear at the time, but it's all right, guys, we're going to get out there and we're going to, we're going to score. It's like, okay. Yeah. I don't know. But how out is, do you guys find him a thoughtful orator? <laughs> am I, am I, am I dog and Diomedes for, for no reason here? There are a couple of places we've seen him before. Remember book 10, he features, he's the chosen sidekick of Odysseus on the night raid. And that makes me think that maybe Odysseus and Diomedes, they're, they're a good pair. Why does Odysseus need somebody else? Well, when two go together, one sees before the other, apparently, right? Whatever that means. In 9, when Odysseus reported the worst possible interpretation of what happened from the embassy, right? With Achilles. So he reports Achilles' initial and worst position. Diomedes is the guy who says, well, what do we need Achilles for, right? We're still, we're still better. Let's, let's post guards. Let's get ready to do forays. Let's do something. So it does look like Diomedes is repeatedly serving the role of the one who says, no, we can still fight under these conditions. Can and should still fight. Odysseus simply says, Agamemnon, your plan is really stupid. He doesn't suggest anything positive. Nestor himself agrees that wounded people shouldn't go back to the battle. But Diomedes kind of splits the difference. He says, we should be seen at the battle, but we should stand far enough away, the wounded ones, that we can't be wounded again. Right? And maybe that there's something really important about that because it acknowledges the importance of the soldiers who are still fighting they're being seen by the leaders yeah that that makes sense that makes sense to me i mean there's there's the you know seeing seeing the boss out there getting his hands dirty sometimes you also need the guy that just says hey diddle diddle right up the middle sometimes you don't need a a terrific battle plan sometimes Mm -hmm. you just gotta say we're here they're there we're going over there yeah so that makes sense and Mm-hmm. I've really, I, I really want to talk about the hair and Zeus thing, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah. No. What about that episode? That's that's a weird one, right? Well, I, you know, I was struck. You know, and you you asked uh, during the last pod, like, why would somebody want to listen to this uh, book? Like, if somebody was just asking for like one. Book. Oh, but I said that about thirteen. You said right? that about thirteen, you know, I, yeah, but yeah. The, and, and so the sexy I, business makes this one a favorite, right? And so the thing is, is like you you have your Michael Bay would direct thirteen, right? Cars are blowing up and everybody's shooting lasers at right. each other, and it's it's an action sequence. But now, now you've got, you have seduction and you have Zeus and it's, it's comic too, which is nice. Zeus, Zeus is so ruled by his passions. I I mean, I don't even know if Hera really had to go through with like going to talk to Aphrodite and getting the belt or the (laughs) zone or whatever, show him a little bit of leg and he's, he's going to get distracted pretty quickly. (laughs) So we've got this kind of how easy is not how easy, but it's kind of easy to trick Zeus. And we're, right. we've got this kind of like the gods are off frolicking while the mortals are, you know, killing each other, um, which I thought was interesting about 13 too. Like Zeus kind of goes away. And so what's going on? It's like, well, the humans are killing each other. And, you know, we saw that when the group, when the gods were around too. So what does that say in terms of the gods direct mm-hmm. involvement? It seems like we kind of do this regardless but occasionally, I guess we, you know, kind of take breaks for, for lovemaking. It was also interesting to me just because, like, this whole book is predicated on sex, right? This whole book is predicated on the fact that Helen took Paris seduced 
Helen took her away. And so Hera seducing Zeus and taking him away from the battlefield has <laughs> got to be in there for a reason. So just to remind us, I think, of kind of some of the backdrop of what's going on. That's kind of my, my stab at why I put this in here, is it's a little bit of... We've, we've, had, we've had several Michael Bay episodes in the last couple books um, of people just schwacking each other. So, and then we had people talking a decent amount. So, hey, how do we change things up? How do we put a little comedic interlude? You need to laugh. I just I mentioned to you guys before we were recording that mm-hmm. I just produced Richard the Third, and there's there's a lot of laughs in Richard the Third because you know you can't sit there for two and a half hours and everything is death and sex. Like you need to laugh a little bit in there too. But anyway, what do you, what do you guys think? Why why is why is this in here? Is kind of my question. Well. I mean, I guess I've got a, a very boring answer, and so I'd like to give it and then pass by it to whatever is more interesting. But it does seem like it, there's just a difference between Zeus not paying attention and Zeus being asleep, right? Is that fair to say? So that Zeus not paying attention is Poseidon disguised, but Zeus asleep means that Poseidon can appear openly. And it looks like maybe the the Achaeans need Poseidon as himself rather than Poseidon disguised. He reveals himself at 147. I guess the problem with that, though, is that it doesn't quite line up. Poseidon reveals himself, and that's what makes Hera decide to go to Zeus. So there is this brief interval where Poseidon is acting openly, and Hera is headed towards Zeus to get him to fall asleep, but he's not asleep yet. So it doesn't quite line up there. But aside from those kind of mechanics of how the, the book is work, how, how it's constructed or how it works, I, I'm intrigued by the thought that the episode's funny. Can we put our finger on exactly what the funny part is? Is it that Zeus is subject to his sexual desires and can't kind of pay attention to the most important thing he's got going on? Is that where the humor is? Well, I think it's also what Shiloh pointed out in the summary, that Zeus is... <laughs> I don't know, just incredible buffoonery of like, you know, it wasn't shall I compare thee to a summer's day, you know, it was shall I compare you to all these other women that I have slept with, um, which is just like, you're reading this, you're just oh, really, you're You're doing this like, wow. So, I mean, I kind of found that funny that the, the king of the gods would, when choosing to, I guess, be seduct. He's being seduced. He's oblivious, maybe, to being seduced or something. So he's trying to seduce Harrow or something like that and saying, no, no, you're you're so amazing. Let me compare you to this laundry list of women that I'm going to remind you that I was with in order to explain this to you. And so on some levels, it's ludicrous. And so it gave me a little yeah. bit of a chuckle. Yeah, I guess you expect Zeus... I mean, is it, is it funny because you expect Zeus to be more than he appears to be in this book like you expect hmm. some other dimension of him to show itself such that in the most serious moments he can resist his appetites and yet he's shown here to be unable to resist his appetites granted there may be some sort of magic involved or some other i don't quite fully understand that but at any rate he's unable to resist his appetites and when you you compare zeus in his highest concerns and his indecision. I mean, he's kind of a wishy-washy guy. He tries mm-hmm. to please everybody. He's a man of appetites. You know, not the person you really want to elect president, for example. When you compare him to something like uh, the seriousness of Odysseus's speech 
in this book, like a man of, of Odysseus's caliber and character who is, you know, in a way, a master of his appetites. I mean, this comes out in, in the Odyssey some, is, is at least able to control them more than others and expose himself to, you know, things that would you know, drive other people crazy, but is able to restrain himself and, and, and desires almost to, to be exposed to things and challenge himself to, to restrain himself. And so, uh, and then when you, you know you look at Agamemnon's great cowardice, but then you think about um, about Achilles, and so I mean Zeus as a man, in the order of rank of men, Hector would be another in mm-hmm. the, the wonderful scene with his wife and daughter. He's just not a serious man. If you're a serious man yourself, or if you admire serious men, it's very difficult to admire Zeus. And I wonder, I don't know what that means or what Homer's trying to do with that, but um, that's what I think maybe accounts for some of the uh, the comedy here. Yeah, he's more like Paris. Right. If you had to choose a human hero that he's like, he's a little bit like Paris. Paris is out there fighting, but oh, it's too hard. Right. Somebody spirits him off and now he's there with Helen. Right. Oh, lovemaking might be better. Right. Why don't I do this instead? Right. The battle's still going on. And then Hector shows up and says, where, where have you been? <laughs> you know, get back to the battle. Oh, OK. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but sorry, Brian, you were going to say well, something. Well, no, I mean, it just puts me in mind of, you know, somebody else that's in charge of something that maybe shouldn't be in charge of something, right? Like Agamemnon, you know, I remember I remember Jeff Black telling me when I was recently graduated from the St. John's Graduate Institute and was just doing like a elective Iliad class with Jeff and... He was just like, yeah, be on the lookout for, you know, these parallels that we're going to draw between or the parallels that Homer's potentially drawing between the gods and the, and the mortals. And I think one has to look at Agamemnon's kind of wishy-washiness and lack of ability to keep a coherent command structure and to some degree that that's his job. And so it's his fault. You know, we talked about in 13, like that people were disgruntled. That's the boss's fault if people are disgruntled. And so we have these Harris seducing him and Poseidon sneaking off and all this kind of stuff. And the buck stops at the top. And so it's the same with Agamemnon, right? Agamemnon's like, oh, we should we should leave. <laughs> like, or maybe he's gonna have himself a cry. Those are and but this guy's in charge for some reason. You just go, wait, what? You're in charge and you're just gonna trying to help out Hector, but you're like, eh, a little bored going to go off and then oh Hera oh she's looking good I'll go do that I'll take a nappy poo it's just not what you would look for in a good leader but they're still in charge what I guess what is what is the the points that Homer is drawing out or what what can we extrapolate from the fact that maybe Zeus shouldn't be in charge and maybe Agamemnon shouldn't be in charge but also that well I was also gonna say we've we've kind of decided a little bit i think that like agamemnon's not the best leader and zeus <laughs> i would argue is not the best leader and hector seems pretty great hector seems pretty great but he still loses mm-hmm. so this is this is that question that we we're talking about with diomedes and mm-hmm. it's doesn't matter exactly who the best is in some weird qualifying kind of way it just matters kind of who mm-hmm. wins to mm-hmm. some degree I was going to say that we've seen that Zeus claims at least to be the strongest of the gods, right? Not just stronger than any other god, but stronger than all of the other gods, right? And so in that sense, he seems like, for strength, he seems analogous to Achilles. But right, for attention (laughs) to uh, his goal, he seems more analogous to Agamemnon or maybe to Paris or something like that. For sexual distraction, yeah, to Paris. One of the 
really interesting details that fits nicely with what we're talking about right now. It happens at 135 in this book. Right after this scene of deliberation, Poseidon, who is still disguised, he hasn't revealed himself yet, is going to accompany the kings, the, the Achaean kings, to the battlefield following Diomedes' advice. And uh, in disguise, Poseidon tells Agamemnon that Zeus and the gods are not angry with him. Right? And so there's this, this worry that it's spreading through not only maybe the Greek army, but also the Trojan army, that there's this problem with their leaders. They're not respecting the fighters enough. Right? It might give you the impression, if you're the leader, that you're in the wrong if all the men are now disgruntled. Right? But Poseidon whispers, no, you're, you're not in the wrong. You're fine. And that looks like it's a piece of trying to hearten the, the Greeks, is to give Agamemnon a bit more of a spine, right? Whereas now he seems really to have, to have lost his, his moral fiber. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly which parallel is in, is in play here, but it does look like the will of Zeus being accomplished is not as unconditional a thing as it was presented from the beginning of the book. There are lapses. I guess that's where we're about a time. So, if nobody's got any saved rounds, staring at staring at my Zoom. Okay. Well, I got I got a couple sure. spent rounds. I'll fire just fire on. them off into the air because we can't really uh, follow follow up on them. But some weird things happen in book fourteen and book thirteen that I wish I understood better. And you guys could at least say whether you agree with me that they're there in the text. There's more reference to what sounds like close phalanx style combat. And it might be because all the soldiers are pressed in around the ships now, but a lot more um, massed actions, even though the talk about who does what to whom is still individual soldier against individual soldier. A lot more talk about mistreating corpses, and especially heads that are kicked around as if they were balls, and heads that are paraded around on the end of spears. Um, a couple images that look like they might be going further in their mistreatment of bodies once they've fallen. And then maybe the last thing, and this, this might be connected a little bit to the question of fairness that came up last time, this funny redistribution that the um, Greeks propose at the end where they redistribute all the arms according to how good a fighter each of the fighters is. So the good fighters get the good arms and the bad fighters get the bad arms. It's no longer who owns what. And there's some very interesting lines where it looks like Poseidon is the one who suggests this and then the Greeks go ahead and do it. So there are some hanging threads in this tapestry that I'm not quite sure what to do with, but they do, they do puzzle me. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll just mention that as a schmucky intel officer, pretty much everybody got M4s but us. <laughs> we, were, we were still lugging around our old trusty M16s because <laughs> they're like, you guys don't need this. Which You're is, good at deliberation, Brian. Yeah, yeah, I was busy deliberating. <laughs> So, yeah, good times. All right. Well, thanks, fellas. Another book in the in the books. We're, yeah, we're thanks, at guys. Combat and Classics. Combat and Classics at gmail.com if you want to get in touch. Give us a rating on iTunes, and you can donate on our website, combatandclassics.org. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.
Thank you.